Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 41, Building Incurable Hope with Lisa Genosa. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions have affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mine Out Emotional Wellness Center in Texas. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we talk with Lisa Genosa, who wrote a wonderful book called Incurable Hope that combines a memoir of her journey through the trials of her son's addiction with the wisdom and tools she has learned that can help anyone who loves someone that has an addiction or other mental health issues. Along the way, she looks at what changes can be made to move towards greater peace and recovery, both as individuals and as a society. All this and more after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. I'd also like to let you know that Windmill Wellness Ranch now has a free course available to any family or friends of anybody with any addiction. The course is available at windmillfamilycourse.com. Once you go and sign up for free, you'll get a weekly email pointing you towards blog posts, videos, and podcast episodes that help carry a message of hope. Sign up today at windmillfamilycourse.com. Welcome back. Without further ado, let's jump into our interview with Lisa. If you would, go ahead and just introduce yourself to our audience. Let us know who you are and what are you doing on a show called Addiction in the Family? Thank you so much. It's a really big honor to be here. I appreciate you having me on. And I'm Lisa Genosa. I'm a physician assistant. I've been practicing for a little over 10 years. I live in a small rural community where there is not a lot of access to specialists and and such. So even though I'm family medicine, I take on a lot of substance abuse or substance use disorders and mental health a lot, a lot more than I ever thought that I would. And I do very happily. I'm happy to do it every day. I have a son who has substance use disorder. He is doing really well today. Kind of throw that out there and, you know, break the suspense, we'll say. But he is doing really well today. But we've been in the trenches for about 15 years. And our family has gone through kind of our own horror show, as many families do, right? So I I decided to write about it. I wrote because I needed this place to release all of that pain. So initially, my writing was just strictly about therapy. That's all it was. I never intended to write a book. I really didn't. But Being in the practice that I am, I recognize that families were really trying to find resources and trying to find answers and trying to decode the language of addiction and what was happening to their family members. So the more I wrote, the more I realized how it might be helpful or valuable to somebody else. And so kind of blossomed from there, really snowballed. And so here I am today with you on a podcast talking about it, and it's a whole new experience, but I'm really glad it's come around to this. 
Me too. Well, something I want to say is when I got your book and I got a chance to read through it, it's just a beautiful book. It's heart-wrenching. Thank you. But it's beautiful. And it's partly because you write beautifully, but also write in a very personal style, just talking about, here's my experience. But you also do a really good job of generalizing it, saying like, here's my experience and here's how what I've learned along the way might benefit you. And that's such a big deal to be able to do that, to be able to put that experience out. So I hear you on the idea of like, I just started writing this for me. I just needed to write. And then recognizing, and I think it probably helps being in the healthcare field, yeah. that a lot of people need this information, but sometimes the best way to access it is through somebody's personal story to be able to say, okay, I relate to that. This person understands what I've been through. And I imagine you've probably had some experience in hearing other people's story the same way. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Being in this profession, you're behind closed doors. It's a private situation that people can reveal some of the hardest hardships that they experience. So yes, I've been receptive to that and wanted to share the experience along with them. And I guess not wanting to, but being able to, I should say, being able to share that experience. So it just provided a non-judgmental, safe place for myself and my patients to really dig a little bit deeper and understand things a little bit on a more personal level. But when I wrote the book, I tried to have a very balanced way of looking at things. And even though what happened to my son, for example, was something horrible, I tried to understand it from that other person's perspective, what happened in that case, for example. So I do really try to understand the dynamics of everything that's happening, not just from my viewpoint only. Absolutely. And it sounds like we had similar motivations in writing our first books. Yeah. Because when I wrote mine, it was sort of like, okay, I have a lot of these same conversations. And it's not that I get tired of saying it, but then I think like, well, somebody out there is not going to meet me personally. Somebody's not going to sit down in your office. They may not have that chance to just have that conversation with you one-on-one. -on -one. So in writing, we have an opportunity to put it out there in a wider way. But you mentioned something really important there, and it shows up very early in your book. In fact, I tagged it on page four. You go from a very personal, intimate, you know, here's my story, but you go and you say, it's a disease of the human brain, but also of the human condition and of our society. Yeah. And you touch on those themes. And can you maybe talk about what brought you to that point of view and what you might want to say to somebody? Well, obviously the brain part, what's happening sort of behind the curtain, I do talk a little bit about in the book and try to explain it so that when we're dealing with it on that level, that we're not approaching it from a place of anger and resentment towards the individual that has substance use disorder. We're approaching it from an understanding physiologically what's happening to some degree. I mean, that's limited. Obviously my study is in biology, but even if you're not studying that, there should be some limited understanding, right? So on that part of it, I wanted to say, we understand it because this is what's happening. And this is why it's important to understand that. From society standpoint, I think it is a disease of society because commercially we sell a good fun time with drugs and alcohol all the time, whether it's in commercials or movies, whether it's alcohol or even heavy illicit substances, cocaine and opioids, those are really glorified in a lot of ways in our television and movie sets. And that's important for us to realize that we're perpetuating essentially the addiction disease by celebrating it almost, by glorifying it. And I guess the acceptance of that by society is what disturbs me a little bit, but also then we're going to criticize that individual as well because it's their moral failing or they did something wrong. So on one hand, we're glorifying it. And on the other hand, we're we're saying, you know, you're wrong for doing it. So it's this mixed messages, I think, in our culture that is just very confusing and very hard for the families that are dealing with this every day, going through the experience saying, you know, I'm trying to help this person. And should I be, you know, treating them with tough love, which I'm not a tough love advocate, right? But they're saying, you know, should I be treating them with tough love? Because, you know, it's their moral failing because society saying this is okay. Well, that's not an accurate depiction. And ultimately that's why I was trying to say it is a problem of society as a whole. We really have kind of failed by giving mixed messages, talking out of both sides of our mouth, I think. Absolutely. And you're saying in my social work heart over here, I'm a clinical social worker by trade. I see. When I come from that perspective, you know, the first thing we're trained is let's see the individual for who they are. Yeah. And let's look and see what systems do they grow up, you know, family, culture, society, all these different levels, and they all have an influence. Yeah. 
And yet at the same time, most addiction recovery programs are going to tell the person, you need to take responsibility for yourself and what you've done. And even there, I can say for me as a clinician, there's a little bit of a tug of war because I teach addiction in the brain to families. Yes. And I teach it to our clients and I tell them, you don't need to know any of this stuff in order to recover on either side. However, it may remove shame and blame. It may get you out of a mindset of whose fault is it? Because if we say, well, it's society's fault, it's the media's fault, it's the individual's fault. I think in any of those, we're missing the mark because we don't do that with diabetes most of the time. We don't sit around and say, well, whose fault is this? Who do we blame? We need to teach those people with diabetes. We need to treat them with tough love or we need to coddle them. Like none of those things really helps with the disease, right? And yet when it comes really, I'm going to say broadly to mental health, not just addiction, I think people get very nervous because it's the brain, it's the control center. Yes. And it affects the choices we make. And we tend to judge people based on their choices. And so there's a mixed message within that as well. Yes. And to me, it was important to be able to take away the anger and resentment. You know, I would go to family meetings or even Al-Anon and so many of the parents would just be sitting there fuming and so angry and awful words coming out of their mouth about their loved one, whether it's their spouse or their parent or their child. And I wanted to say, let's look at a deeper understanding of what's happening. Of course, that's not my space and time to do that there, but that's kind of why I did that in the book. There's so much more behind the story. I really feel like there is an element of self-harm when using substances. In my son's case specifically, now I don't think that's across the board, but I think in his case, was his use a form of self-harm? That's a deep question. And it speaks to the multitude of things that may feel like motivators for somebody. But it also speaks to something that I know as a clinical social worker, which is a lot of the times, a lot of the people out there, most of us don't actually know why we do a thing when we do it. We're driven for emotional reasons that we may understand poorly, if at all, and then we make choices. And we know this from brain research, then our frontal lobes, the rational mind, will then rationalize. <laughs> That's what rational things do really well. It will make up a reason why we did that thing that may or may not have anything to do with the actual reason that we did it. And so this becomes really, when we talk about who's blaming the person with the addiction, probably nobody blames them more or worse than the person with the addiction themselves. How can I do this? And I'm speaking also now, I'm going to put on a different hat. I'm a guy in recovery myself. And so from that perspective, I can say one of the best descriptors I ever heard was from a client in a family workshop who raised his hand and said, this is like all out war with yourself. Yes, it is. Absolutely nailed. I, I said, I'm going to be quoting you for years, and I have been, because it is different parts of the brain in a tug of war. And the older, more entrenched part of our brain in the limbic system will tend to win when the fear gets great enough. And some of us grew up in a lot of fear. So the addiction just becomes a way to relieve that fear. And we're not even sure what we're relieving or why we're doing it. I agree. And I remember it took me a long time to understand that the anger that was being spewed at me, right, in really dark times was really the internal hatred that he had for himself, the fear that he had, the self-loathing. And for a long time, I took it so personally, like, this is an attack on me. Now I realize every bit of it was attack on himself. It just took me a long time to get there. And I don't, I don't want other parents to go through that because I know everybody takes it personally. You can't help it to some degree, but so much of it in his case was because it's how he felt inside. And of course, in your journey as a parent, bringing it down now, again, more to the more personal, you talk a lot about denial in your book. Yeah. This idea like, I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to look at it or denial to other people. I didn't want to tell people how he was actually doing and to me, that maybe interfaces with that same thing, especially if we don't understand what's happening. But even if we have all the biological knowledge in the world, we can still take it personally. And from that perspective, it's hard to really see and or talk about what's happening. And do you mind talking a little bit about your own journey with that? Well, that is, I mean, I denied, denied, denied for well over a decade almost. I mean, we probably were going through this for a solid 15 years, part of that, not really understanding, but the denial really became a protective mechanism. Unfortunately, it's again why I emphasize that so much, because if you can first avoid that denial, 
you can step in a lot sooner and make change and help that change. Start implementing practices that will create change for that person with in your life that you love so much if you just first don't deny. Denial was kind of my sickness for a long time, I would say, because I just didn't want to accept it. And I wanted to avoid the reality. You know, I grew up in, I guess, simplicity, right? There just wasn't addiction in my home. We didn't have a lot of drama. It wasn't perfect or, or super easy or anything. There wasn't anything that I had like this. So this was something so out of the realm of what I had as far as my expectations were concerned, right? We all have these natural expectations in life. It's why you get on the television and you see when there's like a natural disaster, like a tornado or a mass shooting, even people, their their first response is, I never thought this would happen to me. I never imagined this would happen in my neighborhood. This is a really unified small town. We can't believe this happened here. It's because our expectations do not match the, you know, the reality, the pain. And so we kind of live in a world that's, you know, predictable. And when we get outside of that predictability, it feels very, very uncomfortable. And I didn't like that feeling at all. I didn't like unpredictability and I didn't understand it. So I just kept denying it. And even though he was getting deeper and deeper and deeper, I was pretending it was, oh, it's teenage antics. It's experimentation. It's all going to be okay. He'll grow out of it. But the more <laughs> after you have hospitalizations, incarcerations, nine rehabs, there's somewhere in there that I said, okay, I can't deny this anymore. I got to meet up with the reality of this and uh, be present because I'm going to lose my son if I don't. And that's such a difficult moment. You know, we talk a lot about the person with the addiction has to hit rock bottom and then they'll change, right? And yet many of us have seen like, ourselves or our loved ones bounce off the bottom and it's like that wasn't bottom wait that wasn't bottom are you you're going to keep going after that you know people will say well i hit rock bottom and i grabbed like a pickaxe and a shovel and i started digging you know but sometimes we don't recognize family members have to do the same thing a lot of times you have to hit your own rock bottom where you say not just this is bad but i'm not going to keep going the same way so if the same way is denial then i'm not going to keep going that way right whatever it is and you're right there is uh, and man, I wish I could rewind to the time here and know what this was like 15 years ago before I even was going back to school to be a counselor or studying any of this stuff. I heard a radio program and they just mentioned they'd done this interesting set of experiments. They found a chemical in the brain that encourages people to think that what happens to other people won't happen to us. <laughs> and so, like you said, we can watch it on TV and go like, oh, those poor souls, or as they say in Texas, oh, bless your heart, <laughs> which is a way of saying like, I don't know how you got yourself in this mess, but that's not me. Right. And yet, when it does happen, uh, what they found is they can actually dampen the chemical and people suddenly have a very realistic view. And I mentioned this to one of my clients. I just started working in the addiction treatment field. And this client said, whatever that is, can you get that for me? Because I never think anything's going to happen to me. But he also mentioned like adolescence. Yeah, it's easy to look at our kids and say, well, this might be the normal thing. Although I did have one podcast guest that said uh, the first time she drank, she was 14, she blacked out. And her dad, who had grown up in a family with a lot of alcohol problems, turned to her mom and said, she's an alcoholic. And the mom was like, oh, don't be silly. I mean, she's just 14. And he was like, no, I've, I've seen this one. I know this one. This is how it goes. But no one else in the family would believe him. Wow. That's including, yeah, including our guest, Teresa, if anyone wants to look up the, <laughs> the podcast episode, it's a great interview. And she talks about this. And just like her dad recognized it, she didn't recognize it, mom didn't recognize it, nobody recognized it. Because adolescence is a time where we're gonna have more of that media influence. We're gonna care a lot more about what people around us think. And we're supposed to take a lot more risk for a lot less reward. Mm -hmm. But also another big piece that we add in is that anything that we've gone through emotionally as kids that we may have seemed to sail through is gonna blossom anew in adolescence. And we're going to see it in a different way because in adolescence, that's around the stage of development where we get to recognize not just how one thing is different than another, but how something is different than the ideal or what it could have been. And we look in the mirror and we apply it to ourselves first. My life should have been different. I should be different. That could be really painful stuff. And somebody comes along and says, here, drink this, smoke that, snort that. It'll feel better. And voila, it works. And I don't care how many DARE programs, drug education, whatever you offer somebody, 
when I was a kid, it was like, you know, smoke pot, you'll turn into a werewolf and run off the top of a building. You know, you smoke pot the first time, you're like, well, that didn't happen. What else did they lie about? This stuff is not so bad. <laughs> and I need some relief. And lo and behold, there is relief offered. And we're at an age where even if someone says, hey, this could get really bad later, we're like, yeah, I hear you, but whatever. Yeah. I need relief now. And so it's difficult to recognize that's happening with one teenager, whereas the next person over them is just kind of partying hardy and they're going to be fine. And in a couple of years, yeah, they'll get to college and they'll ramp it up a little bit. They'll get bad grades and go like, whoa, I'm not doing this anymore. And then they cut it out. We don't really know who's going to keep going and who's not. So I'm going to say for any family member, don't look in the mirror and say, man, I should have recognized this when they were 14. That's rare. And besides which, nobody would have believed you. So true. I mean, we're, I'm, you know, in medicine, my husband's in medicine. He's a family physician. We ate dinner at the table every night. You know, my son played in sports and was in Boy Scouts. And we did all the things that were just sort of, you know, everyday life. It was nothing really extraordinary going on. But there was this underlying brewing addiction starting at the age of 12 that went under our nose. We had no idea. And you said something about getting to the point of that realization. And there is a, a moment of grief, not just for the individual with substance use disorder. So their grief, their understanding, their rock bottom, but for the parents or the spouse or other loved ones. There is a reckoning of awareness when you realize that the life that you thought you were going to have is over. The life that you expected for your child is not going to be what it was or what it is. And you go through those stages of grief. Absolutely go through those stages of grief. I put that at the very beginning of the book because that is exactly what I went through. Like I went through that for years and I fought that tooth and nail because I was just not willing to accept that this was going to be his life or my life. I was just not willing to accept it until one day acceptance happened. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that we, as odd as that sounds, as weird as that is, I am so grateful our family has gone through this experience because we've grown, we've grown much tighter as a family. If there was a way to do that, we did. We're so much more open to helping others, we're more educated. You know, these things would not have happened if we hadn't gone through what we did. They never would have happened. And it opened our eyes and gave us the ability to help others. And that is something that is all I ever cared about was, you know, finding a way to help others. That's why I'm in medicine, right? And this just gave me and my son and my husband just an enormous opportunity to help as many people as we can. But we had to go through that grief. We had to go through that Ooh, that guilt, that denial. <laughs> we had to go through all those stages to get here. Yeah. And for anyone out there that doesn't know the stages of grief off the top of their head, the stage that is the gateway into acceptance is sadness. And in fact, in the original model, they would have said depression. Yeah. But you have to go through that sadness. You're not going to get to the acceptance without going through the tears and the sense of like, loss because that's to me emotional what sadness is about it's a sense of loss and you're right it can just simply be the loss of i thought my life was going to look like this not like what it does yeah Back to that idea of comparing things to kind of our ideal yeah but as we move through that we can find acceptance and one way to find acceptance is to find meaning in it or create meaning in it and one of the number one ways that people can create meaning in their lives is being of service to others which is exactly what you're describing. You found like, where's the gift in this? Mm -hmm. Which I'm gonna give long-term spoiler here. The book I'm writing for next year, I have a children's book coming out in a few months um, to help kids understand what their parent might be going through. Wonderful. And help caregivers understand how to talk to kids about it, because unfortunately they tend to just lie to kids. But the next one that I'm working on that the children's book actually interrupted is about the gift of addiction and being able to see, that'll be down the line. Love to. Um, so I'll warn you ahead of time, I'm probably already going to want to interview you again <laughs> by the time this comes up. But that'll. So, hey, we've made it all the way through page five of your book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've got so many notes here of things I want to talk to you about. We're not going to hit them all. Okay. And some of them you kind of talked about, like on page 46, you talk about the free lapse. It was an awakening. I became a different version of myself because that reality could no longer be avoided. And while that is a painful moment, I also recognize that it can be a transformative growth moment. You also mentioned in there that at that point, you lost your sense of spirituality. You did. It seemed like it was hard to reconcile that. Uh, you talk about your, like, again, anger and grief 
if somebody said, who said God doesn't give you more than you can handle? I wanted to punch them in the face. <laughs> so what I'd like to ask you is by the time you're writing that, I can only assume you found your spirituality again, perhaps in a different way, but in a way that works for you with the reality of what's happening rather than saying, I can't reconcile these. And would you mind talking a little bit about that? Oh, sure. I, that's so true. I did. I gave up. You know, how could the entity that is supposed to be getting you through these horrible times not be there at the most critical of all? And I'm not a super religious person, but I'm a very spiritual person. I have always been. But I've always known since I was a little girl, the story about footprints. There was somewhere along the way that it just popped up. And I don't know, you know, could have been on social media or something like that. And it was a moment of reckoning. You know, you have these different things, the unexplained, the miracles, we'll say, the people that came into your life, the phone calls that I got. It's those things that really pulled me back into understanding what my spirituality meant, what it was that was holding me up ultimately, and what was going to ultimately get us through. And once I let go, <laughs> once I accepted that, again, in that phase of acceptance, it was like, you know, I kind of got washed of all the negativity and all the sadness and the hurt and said, all right, I'm going to lay this at your feet and I'm going to accept the outcome. And that outcome might not be the one that I want. It might be the one that we all fear the most. There was that moment of acceptance. It's terrifying to even say out loud, like to talk about, but with substance use, we all think about the possibility of death. And it was when I said, I understand that that is a possibility and that there's a reason that I went through all of this regardless and that I came to understand and accept that I was going to be okay and my son was going to be okay and we were going to make it because I got to that point of understanding of my own spirituality again. That might sound like a little unusual, like I had to get to the point of accepting the possibility of my son's death to understand my spiritual relationship. Does that even make sense? It is beautiful and it completely makes sense. And I will tell you on a personal level, my daughter, who is a young adult now, did not struggle with addiction. And I'm very grateful for that. I sat her down at 10 years old and said, this runs in our family. Both your parents have it. We're in recovery. We haven't talked to you a whole lot about it. But by the time I was 10, I was like wading consciously into my addiction. I would not have put those words on it, but I had made those choices. This is going to be my life. Wow. I can trace stuff back to kindergarten and say like, there was the addictive thinking. I can trace stuff down to my very first memory at about three months old and say, there was my addictive thinking. So the seeds were always there, but by 10 years old, this was the life for me. So I sat my daughter down and said, hey, this runs on our family. Here's some things you can do that are protective factors. You don't have to join a recovery program, but you know, have a spiritual life of some kind. Keep your mind open. Talk about your emotional problems. If you're going through something, don't go through it alone. All these kinds of things. And I thought up until about 13, like, well, we'll see what happens. But what actually happened is she crashed emotionally and her mental health crashed and she became suicidal for about a decade. And so I had a long time where I thought we may lose this kid. And initially my thought is I need to save her. I'm a dad. This is my job. So I was to protect, keep the family intact. Here's what I'm going to do. And by the time she was, I'm going to say about 16, I had figured out that I can't. And I ended up having a conversation with her in front of a school counselor because she went to a lot of different schools because of her issues and moving around. But in this case, I, I knew the drill. She was going to go to school. Within two weeks, I was going to get a call from somebody, if not a bunch of people. This case of school counselor, did you know your daughter's suicidal? Did you know she's talking about this stuff? I said, yes, I know that. Well, we need you to come down. Sure, I'm on my way. And I sat with her in front of the counselor and said, I can't keep you alive. I would love to. If, if I could, I would. And I can feel, I mean, I heard a little bit of emotion in your voice when you were talking about it. I can feel some emotion in me when I'm talking about it still to this day to say, you're going to have to decide if you're going to live or not. I will love you either way. If you actually die, especially by your own hand, I'll probably regret this conversation right here. But it's still, I know it's right. It's the right thing to say. Not because it's going to influence you or reverse psychology or save you because it's my truth. And probably took a month or two later when it suddenly hit me, huh, I actually also need to tell her, don't try and stay alive for me. 
if you die, I, I will hate that. I will grieve you for the rest of my life. But I don't want you to stick around suffering because you think it's what you need to do for me. You need to decide if you're going to stay alive for yourself or not. I said, your mom might be very upset at me for having this conversation. But again, it's the truth. And in that, I found that we were able to have a better relationship because the things I was doing and interacting with her were not colored by how do I say or do the right thing or not say or do the wrong thing that's going to like tip the balance here. I had to really recognize I don't have that much power. Yeah. Yeah. It's relinquishing that power. I, I had to do that too. And I thought I could control his outcome. I know people feel that way, that somehow they can keep them alive. You read, I would spend any amount of money, try any treatment, go to the ends of the earth. But I had to accept that I wasn't in control of that. And still not to this day. And that's why I'm in a much healthier place for myself. And so is he. I mean, that's something I say it sort of humorously at family workshops now, but it comes up where, you know, so, well, I just need to do whatever it takes to keep him alive. I said, wow, you have the power of life and death. We need to talk after this workshop. <laughs> you gotta let me know the secret, except that we don't, we don't have the power of life and death. And I think partly thanks to medical advances, we kind of take for granted in our society, especially we're in arguably the most affluent society on earth probably that's ever existed, especially when it comes to medical capability and technology, we take for granted that our kids are going to make it. And therefore, if they don't, it must be our fault. And I think for most of human history, not that we wouldn't grieve the kids, but it was just understood. A lot of the kids are not going to make it. You know, Thomas Jefferson, who had all the wealth and power of his day, and was brilliant, I mean, and a remarkably intelligent human being. All but two of his kids died by the time they became adults. Or I should say all of the two of his legitimate married to his wife kids. <laughs> Ironically, the kids he had with his slave all almost all made it to adulthood. Wow. So talk about not having the power. And of course it affected him, and you can see, but it didn't stop him dead in his tracks. He went on to help found and lead this nation and double its size. And his personal book collection became the beginning of the Library of Congress. I mean, he had a lot going for him. This all happened after most of his kids died. People just understood sometimes this happens that it's beyond our control. And I think that we've gained maybe more of an illusion of control as we've gotten better with medicine and parenting and just the assumption that the kids are all supposed to make it. And if they don't, we must have done something wrong. And it's simply not true. So true. Oh my gosh. You talked about the blame in there, the blame that you hold onto. And like, I did all these things wrong for so long. That is something that I really hope people will work through a lot earlier in their loved one's addiction, that they are not to blame letting go of that blame frees you up and enables you to again do the work on yourself and the work for them and with them there are so many reasons there are so many things but it's not something that you did specifically now i guess i i can't say that you know i don't know people's specific situations and i'm sure there's some family dynamics out there that created negative situations but in most cases it's just not the parent or the spouse that is to blame for the substance use disorder it's just not the case there's way too much that goes into it and i'll take a moment put a shameless plug out episode five of this podcast was actually just a recording of me giving an hour-long lecture to families about addiction in the brain just so people could wrap their heads around we could let go of shame and blame it's not somebody's fault because you're right, I used to do a family workshop where we would have sometimes up to 60 people in the room, all of our clients from the treatment center and all the family members who showed up that weekend. And you could hear the family members say, well, if only we hadn't got divorced, or maybe if I'd been more strict. And then someone was like, well, maybe I've been less strict, or maybe I've been more consistent, maybe I've been less consistent. And so I would just run an experiment just for fun in the room. I'd say, okay, everybody raise your hand if your parents got divorced. About half the hands would go up. Okay, raise your hand if they stayed together. Well, the other half of the hands. Raise your hand if they were strict. Okay, raise your hand if they weren't struck. Raise your hand if it was kind of chaotic. Hands would shoot up for all of them. Absolutely. In a room full of people, like you said, I know you're using the uh, the medical term, substance use disorder. It's the same thing I put on my documentation. I use the word addiction because it's just shorthand. But I will tell you, I've moved away from calling people addicts. Yeah. Because it doesn't have to be your identity. There's a lot more to us. Yeah. 
in any case, just looking at that and saying there's no ideal set of circumstances. People come out of chaos and abuse and active addiction in front of them. They, they don't have a substance disorder. They don't become addicted. Exactly. Other people sail smoothly through life, at least from the outside, and they do. And I remember working at a treatment center and one of the nurses said, yeah, everybody else in my family is addicted, but I didn't become addicted. I knew better. Hmm. I'm like, everybody in your family knew better. <laughs> the thing that is so hard sometimes to wrap our heads around because it's kind of scary is that some people sometimes just got luckier. Yeah. The combination of genetics, how you interpreted a certain life event, even if you had a twin and you were standing next to them, one can become addicted and the other one doesn't. And it's not one has better moral character. Sometimes it's just one gene variation or something that happened 10 years earlier that helps you reinterpret this event that just happened and something just wiggles a little bit one way or the other. Absolutely. And I had a family member say that actually once at a workshop. He said he got to the end of it and he said, I'm so glad I did this because I partied really hard just like my stepson who's here. He said, and I've always just thought like, oh, I have better moral character. And he says, now I just recognize I pulled an ace out of the deck and he pulled the two. That's the difference. Just luck. Yeah, that's so true. That is so painfully true. <laughs> but it's important to recognize that at some point and release yourself of that blame because it's so unhealthy and we don't do it, but we should. <laughs> Tell you what, we're going to take just a moment to hear from another one of our sponsors, and then we'll be back with the rest of our interview with Lisa Genosa. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support and our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I'm working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, and information on both my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer. Both are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Let's have the rest of our interview with Lisa Genosa, author of Incurable Hope. This leads into the opportunity for self-examination. And you talk about that in your book, particularly talking about people who work in the helping professions, such as you and me, people in law enforcement, professionals that work around addiction. And you say it's tough to do the consistent self-examination needed in these professions, but it is critical. Now, could you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that draws from what we're talking about so far. Yes. So what happened to my son was by a mental health deputy. That mental health deputy took my son from a hospital bed. He was suicidal. He was supposed to take him to a mental health facility. And instead, in an open gown where he was completely exposed, he took him to a jail and ultimately within about 12 hours, put him in solitary confinement. And so the self-examination there was, okay, what happened to the crisis intervention? What happened to de-escalation? And what happened to the empathy or compassion from the officer that night? You know, this wasn't a simple case. This guy had come in, he didn't know, and, and none of us knew the underlying trauma at that point, but he was asking officers to shoot him because he could not handle what he was holding inside of him. It was too much. So where did the officer kind of go get misdirected and say, oh, this is just another drunk tonight that I have to deal with? I don't want to have to deal with them. It's the middle of the night. I'm driving him to jail. I don't know what else to do with this guy. When everybody in the hospital, the emergency room physician, the psychologist, the social worker, everybody said, this guy has to go to mental health facility tonight. No exceptions. And that's not where he went and ended up in solitary confinement. The self-examination of that officer was really important to me. I said, what happened here? Was he burned out with his job? Was it compassion fatigue? Is he just completely apathetic, desensitized? What 
happen to that individual. I know this is not a systemic problem in law enforcement or medicine, but I worked in the emergency room myself and I saw it in there too. There is a lot of apathy going on and it's very disheartening and very concerning to me because that is where we need the intervention right there between these professionals who are in the job to take care of individuals. That's where the intervention needs to be get them where they need to go, help them in that moment with the education that we can get from crisis intervention to de-escalation. I really felt like this individual needed to have the self-assessment as to what he did in that moment that provided really bad outcomes and say, maybe I could approach these situations a little bit healthier, a little bit better, a little bit more managed and even more educated. That is where I started going in to, you know, myself, I actually went in and volunteered for speaking engagements and did that for a couple of years, you know, training for mental health for police officers, EMS professionals, medical professionals. I would go in and train them more thoroughly than they get in sort of standard care on mental health and substance use disorder, crisis intervention, de-escalation. Those were my talks over and over and over again, because I felt like if I could just help even one of them see how they could handle that situation differently then the outcomes will be better. We've got to get through people one at a time. It was fascinating because I'd have hardcore narcotics agents come up to me afterwards with tears in their eyes and saying, I really need to take a second look at myself and what I've been doing out there. And that couldn't have been more like rewarding than anything I've done so far. I mean, it was just incredible. And I said, if that's how you feel, then I'm really glad you were here today and that you could hear this perspective And I've gone in to work with incarcerated individuals as well, kind of teaching them the same and recognizing and and learning from their perspective what they've been through. And that's been eye-opening as well. It's been probably the most rewarding thing that I've done to date is work on the heroin recovery program within the jail. That also has really helped me to explain to others, you know, what that looks like. And I'm actually working on a compilation of their stories right now as well. You're in it now. You're an author. (laughs) (laughs) It's just kind of coming naturally now. Although again, you couldn't have bet me a billion dollars to say this is where I was going to end up. I'm a biology nerd. You know, I I hated writing when I was younger (laughs) and here I am. So I just think their stories are incredible and I'd really like to share them. And again, I'm going to say it's really just hits a lot of social work notes in there and you getting out there on an individual level, but also like a, what we say, a meso level onto a macro level of how do we actually help people's perspective in there. And unfortunately, especially in a crisis situation, a lot of it comes down to how my trauma response interacts with someone else's trauma response. And we don't know for sure what that is. Absolutely. I would love to say, hey, you know what? Everybody who works directly with mental health should probably make sure they get some mental health help too. Like there should be free therapy out there. Sometimes there probably even is, but then again, not everybody's going to look at that and go like, oh yeah, I should sign up for that. Because it's difficult to look at ourselves at the end of the day, whether you're in recovery from addiction or you're working with people who should be in recovery from addiction or another mental health issue, at the end of the day, it is easier in the short term for a lot of people to look and say, oh, that's them. That's not me. Right. And then in that culture too, it's very hard to, you know, reach out for help even today. I mean, we, we really have come a long way in accepting you know, mental health and, and understanding it. And it's still, you know, I, I take care of police officers. I take care of medical professionals and there's still that stigma. They don't want anybody else to know that, you know, they might be feeling something, you know, related to their job. Um, there's a great quote that I use all the time. They say the expectation that we can be immersed in suffering and loss daily and not be affected by it is as unrealistic as walking through water without getting wet. And I use that quote for my talks all the time because it is absolutely spot on accurate. You can't be exposed, whether it's in the emergency department or on the street, over and over and over with trauma and that loss and that suffering that we see and not sort through it, not deal with it. You can't just look away and pretend it didn't happen because you're going to see it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And that builds and builds and becomes very traumatic in your own right. So you have to sort through those things. 
I wish there was something right now, and it's something that I would love to see changed in law enforcement and even in medicine, where there is a designated amount of time where you are pulled from very difficult duties on the street or you know whatever, and you're made to do something else for a while, something that's very positive, something that's giving back and something that you're being built up for, as opposed to chronic trauma that you see on a daily basis. But there isn't anything like that right now. I can hear that kind of proposal, though, that idea of like, yeah, doing a rotation. You know, in the military, if you're in combat, you're supposed to rotate out for a while, rotate back in. And if you're down there in the middle of it, you can feel like you are in the trenches of warfare. So that idea of having a rotation out is a beautiful idea. So one more thing I want to touch on, chapter 24 of your book. You have this beautiful chapter called Lessons Learned, but it's a bunch of practical advice on finding yourself, finding peace. You don't have to say all the things, but can you just talk about what that chapter means for you? So the work on yourself part, even in my practice, I'm a huge advocate for self-care. Self-care is just critical. There's actually a podcast I was listening to that was the young guys, and it was unrelated to this completely, but one of the guys actually said something like, it's when you take care of yourself that you are being the most selfless person that you can be. And most people feel, and my patients will tell me all the time, if I take care of myself, it's selfish. I, I can't, I have to take care of, you know, all these other people and all these other things. It's, it's selfish for me to take out time for myself. And I explained to them, if you do not take out time for yourself, I didn't either in the beginning, but if you don't do it, you're ultimately being selfish because you're not giving them a hundred percent of yourself. You are minimizing what capabilities you have for them right? You're coming at them at 50% instead of hundred percent when you could be all of yourself and helping them in the most productive way. So taking care of yourself with self-care, what does that look like for you? And I told people, you know, it's different for every human on the planet, right? Going for a walk or talking with a friend on the phone or painting or meditating, whatever that is for you, whatever that looks like, afford yourself that every single day. Because if you do, you will become stronger and healthier, and that will translate into your loved one's recovery. I don't know how it does. It's magic. I don't know, but it does. The more you take care of yourself, somehow it translates into the more they want to take care of themselves. Over time, you see that. And it it's hard to believe, but it does happen. Letting go was another strong point in my own recovery. I'd say I was addicted to my son's addiction, so I had to recover from my own addiction, right? And so letting go was just that moment of reckoning, that recognition of we're either going to go under together, he's going to pull me under and I'm not going to be able to breathe anymore. We're going under the water quick, or I have to let go and free myself and free him ultimately. And guess what happened when I let go and stopped trying to hold on to all of the control and everything that was happening, he started to get better and I got a lot better. And the stronger I got, the more I communicated, the more I helped other people, the more I worked on myself. I got better. He got better. It was wonderful, but it took so long for me to get there. <laughs> and I don't want the people to go through 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years or more and not do that. I want them to start now so that they can start to see those changes in themselves and, and their loved one. And the connection part of it, there's just nothing that compares with human connection and nothing compares with your socialization, I say. So when I tell my patients the best way to get through their own mental health, right, is eating better and having a really good sleeping pattern, right? So we call it sleep hygiene, right? And exercising all the time and drinking lots of water and getting plenty of sunshine. But one of those critical things is socialization. When you are going through this, you automatically want to hide and you want to isolate just like someone with addiction, you know, because you are addicted to. And by letting go of that, by calling someone, going out to lunch with someone, accepting that, you know, you can go to a dinner party and that's okay. For years, I stopped doing anything. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't talk to anyone. How can I explain 15 years of education and our pain in a short conversation with somebody? I can't, it's just, it's a waste of time. I'm not going to do it. And I realize now that was so foolish of me. I should have done it a million times and tried to talk to everybody so that there's less stigma, there's better understanding. It promotes many things. It promotes legislative change. It promotes health insurance changes, right? If we all start to understand it a little bit more, but the more of us that close off and don't communicate and don't connect, the message doesn't get out, doesn't go anywhere. And we stay quiet. 
That's why your podcast is incredible, you know, because you're talking about it and we're having the conversation. And I think it just took a really long time to get here, but we're here and we're finally here. Absolutely. And I'd say as a society overall, I think we're actually doing pretty well with this because if I think back to the roots of like Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935, it's been less than a hundred years since there's been anything like a viable solution that anyone could believe in. And nobody believed in it at first. Yeah. Even the people doing it were shocked that it worked. Yeah. So it's really just been a small handful of decades that there's been a solution that anyone could recognize and that there could be hope. And I love that because the title of your book is Incurable Hope. And that hope is so important Sometimes that's what makes all the difference for somebody is just thinking maybe it's possible to be okay. And that's such a theme in your book, the journey I went through to get to be okay. Yeah. So thank you so much for putting that out there and for telling your story and all the advocacy and the work. Just God bless you for all the wonderful things you're doing to help people's lives be better and born out of your own pain. So Lisa, where can people find your book? You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. So that would be, you know, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, all those. You can go to my website, www.lisagenosa.com. That's with two N's. And you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. So I am out there trying to get my word out there, the book out there to help others. And that's really the only goal. I just want to help as many people as I can, you know, and I'm available. You can reach out to me on email as well. I can be reached at admin at lisagenosa.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I would love to have you back sometime thank you. and just keep doing that great work. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. And that's our interview with Lisa Genosa, author of Incurable Hope, available everywhere that books are sold. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about addiction to the family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Arriaga, with music by Casey.